Well, Father, we come before you just grateful that we have the hope that one glorious day we will see you, and it will be glorious because we will be accepted by you on the basis of the, and the merits of your Son. I pray that this will be a message that uh, prepares us for that great day. It'll be a message that um, causes us to soberly look at what will be the final verdict on that great day and to make those actions necessary so that it will be glorious for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, while in college, Johnny got involved in a Christian ministry really grew in his faith. He began to attend Bible studies, lead Bible studies, and he was encouraged by the leadership of this ministry to apply for a summer mission trip to Mongolia. For two months, he would reach out to the Mongols, eat all kinds of Mongolian barbecue, and grow in his relationship with the Lord. So he went ahead and he went through the application process. He got accepted. He was told he had to raise so much money, and through God's grace and mercy, he was able to raise all the money necessary. He even participated in a week-long training event to prepare him for the rigors of living in Mongolia during the summer. Well, the big day came. He packed his bags. He met his team at the airport. And they systematically walked up to the gate, presented their passports, got their boarding tickets, checked their bags to Mongolia, and it was Johnny's turn. And Johnny went up and he handed the passport to the agent. The agent looked at the passport, all seemed to be in good working order. And then there was that worried look that you never want to see the gate agent have. She excused herself and went to talk to the manager, and the manager and the agent together went up to Johnny and said, I'm sorry, your, your passport's not valid. You can't get on the plane. Johnny grabbed the passport. He's had it for a while, and, and he looked at the expiration date, and he said, there's five months left. The agent explained to Johnny that to enter Mongolia, the government of Mongolia mandates that there has to be at least six months left on your passport when you enter the country. They explained to Johnny that this passport is good for you to leave the country, but not to get into Mongolia. If you show up, your access will be denied. Now, if you're Johnny, you have all kinds of regret. With all the preparation and with all the planning, he never bothered to consider what are the entry requirements for Mongolia, and a quick internet search would have changed all of this. Sometimes you come by information or you learn that access to, is denied when it's too late. This is the essential warning of Jesus as we look at Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. In fact, turn with me, if you will. Jesus just preached on the global scope of the gospel. Here he talks about the narrow application of it. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, 
strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then he will begin to say, we we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves will be cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. According to this teaching, there will be some who will show up at the gates of heaven and be turned away because they had the wrong passport. It wasn't valid. That glorious day that we just sang about will not be glorious on that day, will it? Be a day of endless regret. And my prayer is that this, this message will lead you to take the steps to make sure that your passport will be valid on that glorious day that you do get in. Now, in the larger context of this, we see in verse 22, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Now, whenever you have the mention of of Jerusalem and making his way towards Jerusalem, you see that Jesus is getting ready for the climactic event of his ministry. Because it will be in Jerusalem where he will be betrayed. It will be in Jerusalem where he'll be falsely tried and falsely accused. It will be in Jerusalem where he experiences this miscarriage of justice. It will be in Jerusalem where the mobs will reject him. It will be in Jerusalem that he will ultimately be crucified. It is in Jerusalem where he will suffer. And those who follow a, a suffering Messiah will be called to suffer with him, right? There is a high cost of following Jesus. It's not like he's going to go ahead and take the throne and, and reward his followers with all the spoils of his victory. They will share in his reproach. And so it would be very easy to have some second thoughts about this. You know, Jesus, before we go to Jerusalem to die with you, um, is it really necessary that we follow you? Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, the operational assumption at the time was if you are part of Israel, if you are a son or daughter of Abraham, uh, as long as you, you know, kept the law, like circumcision, that's already been established, but you keep the Sabbath, you eat kosher, and don't do anything crazy like cast a spell, you will get into the kingdom of heaven, no problem. It's almost your birthright. But as Jesus is teaching... He begins to say things to the Jews, right? He's not preaching to the Gentiles, but to the Jews, calling them a faithless and twisted generation. Hmm, that doesn't sound good. 
He begins to say, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You mean you're saying that I may not be fit for the kingdom of God? Or the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect, implying that you need to be ready, otherwise you might be judged. You mean I'm not ready now? Are you saying that those who are saved might be, might be few? Is that what you mean? I thought we were in. Like if you were to pull your typical American... Do you think you're going to go to heaven? What do you think the overwhelming response would be? Actually, look this up. You know how many Americans, what percentage of Americans believe that they are going to hell? One half of one percent. Everybody else thinks they're going to be fine. Hell's for other people. Yeah, sure, they're going to go to hell, but not me. I've never killed anyone. I'm a good person. Uh, I don't even, you know, people who don't believe in God think, well, if there is a God, then surely he would accept me. Of course I'm not going to hell. Hell's for other people. Imagine how many people are going to be stunned when they find out that not everyone who thinks that they're going to go to heaven will be admitted. And this is my question. I mean, some of you might have, like, your hair standing on the back of your neck saying, what kind of church is this? What kind of pastor is this? I thought, I thought Jesus was a loving God. I thought he was all about acceptance. Well, certainly not in this passage. Jesus, later on, will be weeping over Jerusalem with a broken heart. Because he knows that not everyone who thinks that they're going to go to heaven will get there. But he loves them enough to warn them now so that they can be prepared for it later. And that's really the heart, right? If you know something bad is going to happen to somebody, but they could change their fate, naturally you would want to warn them. And that's my goal here. I don't want you to be like Johnny, who finds out that he doesn't have a valid passport until it's too late. So, how do you know that God will grant you access? Well, we have five truths about access from this passage. Number one, we learned that access takes effort. Access is limited. Access will end. Access will be denied. But get this, access is available to all. Right? There'll be a little deconstruction here. But in the end, there will be hope. Access will be accepted, provided you use the right passport. So let's look at this first part. Access takes effort. So the question is, will those who saved be few? Now, does Jesus answer this question with a yes or no? He says in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow gate. And who is he speaking to? He's speaking to them. The, the grammar is, you all need to strive. One person asks the question, Jesus turns around and addresses the whole crowd. I'm not going to get into some theological argument here about the expanse of how many people in or out. He does address that elsewhere. But he says, that's the wrong question to ask. You need to strive to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that word strive comes from an interesting Greek word is agonizomai. Agony. Right? For those of you who've ever done high school sports, the first two weeks, they're terrible. Because it's all about conditioning. And your body hurts. You're in pain. I've heard it said that pain is a sensation, a weakness leaving your body. It's 
agony. It's striving. And Jesus says, you strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, when it comes to Christian faithfulness and maintaining faith in Christ, I mean, it was difficult for Jesus, wasn't it? He was tempted in the wilderness for, for 40 days by Satan himself. Jesus was rejected. His own family turned on him and, and tried to get him to back off on all these crazy messianic claims. He was somebody who, who ministered at great personal cost to himself. He eventually laid down his life. Those who want to live faithfully with Christ get used to being misunderstood. Get used to being swimming upstream. Get used to being tempted on every front to deviate from the narrow path, right? There is a sense where it's not passive. There's an active striving that takes place. Faith is a commitment, right? It's a commitment to to pursue Christ against all opposition and temptation. You strive to enter the narrow door. And, And striving is not to obligate God to save you. That's not how it works. But those who are saved strive on the pilgrim path to the narrow door that enters the gates of heaven. You strive to enter the narrow door. Secondly, access is limited. Strive to enter the narrow door. Not the broad door, not the big door, but the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Now, that word narrow implies that it's small. You see a, a strategic cross-reference in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven thirteen through 14. Enter by the narrow gate. Seem familiar? For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The natural inclination is to be swept down the current, is to... Find your way on the broad path that leads to destruction unless you make a conscious effort to mentally pursue and strive to enter the narrow gate. I mean, you look at um, examples of judgment in the Old Testament and how usually it's a narrow portion that survives. For instance, how many people were saved when there was a worldwide flood? Eight people. That's a small sliver. Sodom and Gomorrah were being judged by God. How many people made it out alive? Four, and then one died on the way. When Israel was being judged by pagan nations, how many people stayed faithful in the middle of that? It was few, right? This acknowledges the biblical reality that even though there'll be people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, it's not going to be a majority. Those who find it will be few. You can't take it for granted. And, and even people who strive to enter, all right, or maybe people who seek to enter won't be able to get in. You look at the rich young ruler, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He thought he did it all, but Jesus isolates the one area of his life that he was unwilling to surrender to the Lord, and that is give up his covetous desire to have money. Some people will say, I'll do anything for the Lord, but I won't do that. I won't break off that relationship. No way. I'm not going to carve out time in my schedule to be with God's people. Don't even ask me to give. I'll do anything for the Lord, but I won't do that. No, it's a complete surrender. 
Otherwise, you will not have access. So the access is limited. There's only one narrow door, right? Yes, through Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And the narrow channel is through active faith in Jesus all the way to the end. And that door is available and open for a time. As you see, access will end. Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. So the image is that of hospitality. The door is wide open. Come and go as you please, right? But when the door is shut, those on the inside will stay inside, and those on the outside will stay outside. There's second chances while the door is open. But when the door is shut, there is no second chance. Final judgment is final. There's other examples of this as we keep on reading. We're going to get to Luke chapter 16. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? Lazarus was a poor man who, who died, and the rich man dies at the same time. And they're put into um, you know, the, the abode of their afterlife. And we'll get into all these details a little bit later on. But the rich man is in torment, and the poor man is in Abraham's bosom, right? He is at the banquet with Abraham. He's enjoying the good afterlife. And the rich man wants the poor man to bring him some relief. And what does, Jesus, what does Abraham say? He says in Luke 16, 26, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and then may cross from there to us. So in this vision of the afterlife, the destinies are fixed and final. You look at Esau. Do you know Esau? That's Jacob's brother. He was a firstborn. He inherited the birthright. The blessings of his father Isaac would be his. But he came back really hungry. Jacob was making some killer soup. So for a bowl of soup, I said, I'll tell you what, I'll just give you my birthright. Jacob says, deal. But then he wanted it back. Well, the author of Hebrews warns in Hebrews 12, 17, For you know that afterwards, when he, Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He was sorry for the decision that he made, but it was too late. Hebrews 9.27, and just as it has been appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. Right? There's no second chances after death. Final judgment is final. When the door is shut, the door is shut. Right now, just so you know, the door is open. The offer is open. You need a second chance, you got a second chance. You need a third chance, you got a third chance. But at some point in time, the chances will run out when the door is shut. And that will happen when either Jesus comes back or when Jesus comes for you. When the door is shut, the decision is final. Fourthly, access will be denied for some. Access will be denied. Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, And you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you are from. 
So when the door is shut, there's going to be some protestation. Wait a second, you mean it's over? When people understand their fate, they're going to be knocking at the door saying, Lord, now notice the change. Notice the address. He's Lord. Now, when Jesus was here on earth, they were calling him rabbi. They would call him the son of Joseph. It's kind of neat that you think you could do some miracles. Some of them were accusing him of being a servant of Satan, casting out demons by using the power of Satan. Some of them thought he was the Messiah until Pilate presented him to the mob and says, well, he doesn't look like a Messiah. And so they rejected him, right? But now that he has shut the door, we get it now, Jesus. You're the Lord. We understand. Let us in, please. And how does he respond? He says, I do not know where you come from. He doesn't say, I don't know you. I don't know where you come from. Now, if you were a Jew, you were defined by where you came from. If you were born in Bethlehem, you're from the tribe of Judah. Judah was the son of Israel, also known as Jacob. Jacob was the son of Isaac, and Isaac was the son of Abraham. If you're from Israel, you were part of Israel, you had a birthright. Right? There is this operational assumption that they had that we're all good unless we do anything to blow it. Right? Doesn't that sound familiar? I mean, there's so many people I talk to, do you believe you're going to go to heaven? When you die, of course. Well, why? Because I haven't killed anyone. Right? I'm in. It's my birthright unless I do something to blow it. And Jesus says, there's no birthright here. I don't even know where you come from. It doesn't even matter. You know, many people would contend that because I'm a child of Abraham, I am good to go. And John the Baptist reminds them, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Your birth doesn't matter. What matters is, do you believe? True sons of Abraham, true sons, have belief and they are reckoned right and righteous by their belief in the one who reconciles them. So, this idea that, okay, we get it now, we now believe that you are the Lord, well, it's too late, and so they try another tactic. Then you'll begin to say, we ate, and we drank in your presence, and you taught in our street. Jesus, don't you remember that you came to our house, and you told us about the kingdom of God, and we had some wonderful conversations? And do you remember how you taught in the streets, and we were there, and we listened to you? But there was something missing. They heard the teaching. But what was their response? But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Same argument. Depart from me, you workers of evil. Note, they heard the teaching, and they rejected the teaching. They did not do the works of righteousness. They did not build their house, the foundation of Christ's teaching. They rejected it. And now, they are rejected. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Doesn't sound like fun, does it? That is a visceral, existential anguish of someone who has been rejected and has been sent to a place 
of permanent suffering and torment. That's Jesus speaking, by the way. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, remember the birthright? We thought we were sons of the patriarchs. We thought that we're automatically in. You're not going where they're going. And the prophets in the kingdom of God, these prophets were men who, who stood for righteousness, who challenged the unfaithfulness of Israel. These were the people that the Pharisees looked up to. They imagined that they would have sided with the prophets because they would have sided with righteousness and they would have taken a stance against idolatry and all of those sins. But they're rejected because of their unrighteousness. But you yourselves will be cast out. These Jews, these faithful Jews, they believed that they had a right to the kingdom of God. They had their credentials. They had their righteous works. They, they had their passport ready to present. And Jesus, the master of the house, says, that's not valid. That's not valid. So while they are rejected, we see who is accepted. You see that access is available to all. Look at verse 29. And people will come from the east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Now, if you were to ask a Jew who's going to be reclining at the table at the kingdom of God, it's going to be your sons and daughters of Abraham. It will be those who have been circumcised on the eighth day. It would be those who keep the Sabbath holy as the law of Moses commands. It is those who refuse to eat bacon and keep a kosher diet because that is what the Lord has prescribed. Well, what about the Gentiles? Well, they can get in if they convert to being Jews. But there is almost this preoccupation with judging the Gentiles. I mean, they are a suffering people, and God sent Gentiles to afflict them. Remember Jonah? He was sent to preach the good news to the Gentiles. He's like, I don't want to preach good news to the Gentiles. I want them to burn. You know, the natural disposition of many of the Jews in Israel at that time is, we want the Messiah to come and purge this country of the Gentiles, not to rescue them. But Jesus is saying, people from the north, the south, east, west, people from outside of the promised land, uncircumcised people, people who don't keep a kosher diet, those are the ones who are going to be sitting at the table you thought was reserved for you. And why? They rejected Jesus. But these Gentiles, and, and keep in mind, not all of them, it says, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. That some of this marginalized class, the prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors, some of them, the ones who get Jesus, I mean, really get him, who understand that they have sinned, they deserve judgment. The ones who understand that there is nothing that they can do to merit acceptance before God. 
You cannot obligate God to save them, the ones who set those things aside, the ones who don't assume that their birthright is good enough, the ones who understand that when Jesus died on the cross, the wrath that was due to me was actually placed upon him. Those who understand that this Jesus who died on the cross did not stay dead, he rose from the dead to affirm that my payment was paid in full, to affirm that he is the risen Lord who will come back to rule. Those who have faith in the risen Lord know that he is Lord and live their life accordingly. Those, doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or not, barbarian, Scythian, man, woman, it does not matter. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, true saving faith in Jesus Christ, you've got the passport that will give you access to heaven. And that is really the hope, isn't it? You can't assume that your legacy, where you come from, or what you did gives you access to the kingdom of heaven. The only valid passport is Jesus. So will those who saved be few? Well, that's the wrong question. The better question is, will you be among the saved? But it's worth also considering, why would somebody ask that question, will those who saved be few? Is the person asking the question hoping that only a few people get in? There are religious movements where that is a very appealing doctrine. If you have a strong central figure like David Koresh or some other cult leader, and he convinces all his followers that the only people who will survive the apocalypse, the only people who will go to heaven are members of this community here, what kind of power does that give that cult figure? Absolute power because he could send you to hell by expelling you from the community. Okay? There are some people like that who are rooting for a restrictive view of who gets into heaven, but I don't think that is the broad bend of human natural theology. There is a greater proclivity to expanding who gets into heaven. In fact, do you know what the first doctrine denied in the Bible is? What is the first doctrine denied? Well, I'm going to read you a passage and you tell me. Genesis 3, 1 through 4. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you are not to eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said, you will not surely die. There will be no consequence for your sin. There will be no judgment for your sin. The first doctrine denied in the Bible is what? It's judgment. When you go throughout sacred history and you hear Israel being called to obedience, otherwise the judgment of God will come, what was the message of the prophets? Peace, peace. And as Jeremiah 6.3 says, these are the people who preach peace, peace, when there is no peace. They're denying judgment. 2 Peter 3.4, they will say, scoffers who scoff at the coming of Jesus, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. There's not any judgment coming. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Human nature wants to deny the judgment of God because they want to deny the authority of God to make judgments. Who is God to tell me what to do? 
use God to tell me what to do. That is the human bent. Now, this has matriculated into various theological movements where this idea of trying to minimize judgment and trying to expand the number of people who go to heaven. And I think there's two major ways that this happens. One is through what I call the non-lordship gospel or the free grace gospel. And the other is through universalism. We'll take one at a time. Okay, there is a, a movement among evangelicalism, and it's kind of dying out, but it always resurfaces, that if you had a come-to-Jesus moment, if you had at one point in time the intellectual belief that Jesus died on the cross, was raised, and you believe him to be your savior, at that moment you are saved forever, no matter how you live or what you do. So you can deny the gospel later on, but if you had a meaningful conversion at the beginning, you are set and you're okay. You can accept Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. You can be a Christian, but not walk with the Lord, as long as you have that one moment. But remember what Jesus just said? He said, depart from me, you workers of evil. When this doesn't show itself on how you live your life, there's something wrong. The Lord's half-brother, James, says in James 2.19, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, right? They believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They believe that he died on the cross. They believe that God is one, right? They get that right, but it doesn't impact their soul. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Somebody who's become a Christian, they are born again. They are changed. They are transformed. And there are new desires with the new life. You have a different take of sin. Sin is not something that you giggle at. Something, it's not something that you're entertained by or you enjoy. It's not something that might embarrass you, but secretly you enjoy it. Sin is an offense against God, and it troubles you. Christians still sin, but they have a different attitude towards it. And over a period of time, it will show itself in how they live. You see, the, the appeal of the non-lordship gospel is you can have assurance of salvation without living a holy life. I'm not saying that holy life saves you, but a holy life reflects the change that took place. I think the other part of it is, too, is you might know somebody who was an on-fire-for-God Christian and is no longer walking with the Lord. Might be a friend, might be a family member. And you want to believe that they're going to go to heaven. Even though they're rejecting the Lord by their lifestyle. And to this, I point you to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name? I mean... They're clearly saved, right? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They're turned away from the gates of heaven because they did not follow in true, trusting, saving faith. The second way people try to loosen the gates of heaven is through universalism. It's the idea that all people will be saved eventually. 
And you can understand the, the argument, God desires all men to be saved. Well, if he desires all men to be saved, he's going to get his way. And God is a God of love, and what kind of loving God would punish somebody forever? You wouldn't punish your kids forever. Why would the Lord? Well, what about hell? Well, hell is a place that people might go to for a little while, but who's to say that when you go to hell, you have to stay there? Could it be a post-mortem, could there be a post-mortem opportunity where you become a Christian in hell and eventually hell is emptied? Right? That is what they teach and believe, and it's always been around. Now, there's an appeal to this. If everybody's saved, then you're saved. If everybody is saved regardless of how they live, then you'll be saved regardless of how you live. So go ahead and snort cocaine. Go ahead and indulge the lusty internet habit. You know, go ahead and take Sundays off. It doesn't matter. We're all going to the same place anyway, right? And you can all get together with all your friends and laugh at those fundies who actually believe that a real hell exists and try to use hell to terrorize and control people. But when you look at this passage, does Jesus sound like a universalist? Why would Jesus threaten people with something that does not exist? He says when the door is shut, the door is shut. He doesn't allow for post-mortem salvation in this passage. Most of our doctrine of hell actually comes from the words of Jesus. Why do I believe that hell exists? Because Jesus says so. Now, a thinking and compassionate person, the idea of, of endless suffering um, for those who reject Christ is, is a difficult doctrine. I do not deny that. If you're not troubled by that, it would be good to pay attention to the attitude of Jesus towards the loss or even the attitude of Paul who said, I would be accursed for the sake of my brethren. But ultimately, the reason why we affirm eternal judgment is because that's what the Bible says. And some things belong to the realm of God and not to us. Romans 9.20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? If, if God thinks it's necessary, it's necessary, and I trust God with that. In fact, I think there's going to be a lot of celebration in heaven when Satan is finally deposed. But there's some other... Um, but as I've kind of thought about it, I want to give maybe four truths that kind of help me think through the justice of eternal punishment. The first one is that the purpose of justice is to restore a sense of rightness, right? If you look at the, the idea of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, if I wreck your car, I pay you back for the damages. But there are some crimes where it can never be symmetrical, right? How many people was Hitler responsible for killing? Well, Holocaust alone, six million Jews. Can Hitler give one life for life there? Or are there are some crimes that can never be uh, remunerated in this life. Secondly, the one sinned against determines the severity of the punishment. Okay, I'm going to do a little thought experiment for you, and this is going to disturb you. I grab a grasshopper, and I say, watch this, and I pull off the legs of the grasshopper. Well, you think, well, it's going to be bait anyway. Why not have a little fun, although that's weird. 
Then I grab a frog and I pull off the legs. Well, maybe he has a thing for frog legs. I hear they're tasty, but still, that's weird. Then I grab a bunny. Disturbed yet? And I pull off the legs. And you're like, oh my goodness, this man's my pastor. Then I grab a puppy. Oh, no, you don't. And then I grab a baby and you tackle me. Same thing, pulling off the legs, right? What's the difference? It's the dignity of the victim. We will never know how severe our sin is against God until we see him face to face. Sin against God is worse than sins against people. Sin against God is a big, big deal. Thirdly, you won't know the depths of your sin till final judgment. I mean, how many people would Hitler have killed had not the Allies stopped him? How many lusty images will a porn addict looked at were it not for limited access and limited time? How much greed would satisfy somebody's life? Right? There is a, a common grace limit to the amount of sin that people can indulge, but the full heart will be revealed at judgment. And then fourthly, and I think this is probably the most compelling, our sin against God alters our relationship with him. Do you know that people continue to sin in hell? Where there are weeping and gnashing in teeth? They utter all kinds of blasphemous and vile things against the God of the universe, and they are still in a state of constant punishment because they are still sinning against God forever. Hell is real. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Jesus teaches us on hell, and why do you think he did? Do you think he delights in it? This warning about access potentially being denied is a gift of God's grace for you. This is a gift. This is an act of love. This is a call for you to check your own passport and see if it's in good order. And you know what? If it's not in good order, there's time to get a valid one. And it begins with coming to Jesus Christ in faith, humility, and repentance. Understanding that on the cross he took the wrath of sin due to you upon himself. Understanding that God raised him from the dead and that he is the risen Lord. And understanding that he is the Lord of the universe and king. And to make him your king. To have faith that he is your king. Your access will never be denied if your passport is stamped with Jesus. So what do you say? If this has raised questions in you, my, my, my encouragement is don't let this pass you by. Accept this gift. Make the changes. And then we can all look forward to that glorious day. Agreed? Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you and I pray for anyone here who might be convicted or should be convicted that your Holy Spirit will work on them so that all of us will be prepared for the great glorious day when we will see you face to face and our faith will be sight. Lord, for anyone who might be angered by this message, I pray that um, they'll reconsider why they're angry. That'll be more important for them to be right with God than to just be right. I pray for anyone who might be scared or concerned because of this message. Lord, I pray that they will take it to you and that um, 
if they are of you, they'll receive the assurance and the comforting assurance, or perhaps they'll do the things that will give them more assurance. But Lord, please prepare us for that great day. In Jesus' name, amen.